You're listening to TIP. With the DXY, aka dollar index, at a 20-year high, I had to bring back Brent Johnson of Santiago Capital to investigate whether his dollar milkshake theory is finally underway. In this episode, we discuss why the stagflation playing out today is the worst case scenario, what is causing the dollar to strengthen to 20-year highs, why the Japanese yen just reached 40-year lows, how high energy costs exacerbate the issue, their performance of silver and gold, why it'll be best to own U.S. assets over time, and much, much more. I always enjoy speaking with Brent, and it's especially interesting when a contrarian take begins to show merit. You do not want to miss this one. So without further ado, please enjoy my discussion with Brent Johnson. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Lockerbie, and I'm really excited to have back on the show, Mr. Brent Johnson from Santiago Capital. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Happy to talk to you today. So you're becoming a recurring guest, it would seem. And I have to mention that one of our most frequent recurring guests is Luke Groman. And from where I'm sitting, there seems to be somewhat of this uh, lover's quarrel, let's call it on Twitter, between you and Luke. And a lot of our listeners are pretty familiar with his side of the argument. I just wanted to see if you could elaborate a little bit more, provide some nuance or context around your position versus Luke's. Sure. Well, so the funny thing is, is that Luke and I actually agree on a lot of things, but it's not fun to talk about stuff that you agree on, right? Where you learn is when you talk about stuff you disagree on. And I don't have a problem per se with Luke's outlook. And to a certain extent, we come at this from different angles, right? He's writing research and I'm managing money. And those two things are not exactly the same thing. They're related, but they're not the exact same thing. And, you know, I think Luke, this is my opinion and take it for what it's worth. And, you know, I think a lot of the things that Luke talks about are possibilities, whereas it's my perception that people read about his possibilities and turn them into high probability events. And I just don't think that that's reality. And I think whereas Luke and I kind of end up at the same end game in a way, I think there's a lot of portfolios. And again, I look at this from a monetary perspective, not just a theoretical perspective. I think there's a lot of portfolios that will not survive the path to the end game if you take all these low probability events and turn them into high probability events. And so, you know, there's two sides to every story. I don't know for certain that I'm right. And Luke can tell you whether or not he thinks he's certain he's right. But I just know there's two sides to every story. And I don't think it's quite as simple as many people think it is when it comes to things like global reserve currencies, fiat currencies, you know, what countries can and cannot do, geopolitical conflicts. I think there's a lot of uncertainties in there. And, you know, over the last couple of years, my biggest beef with a lot of other people is the certainty with which they expressed their opinion, for lack of a better word. I've always kind of said I could be wrong. I don't think I am. I'm a pretty stuck person. But, you know, I fully admit that I could be wrong on this stuff. And I think everybody should admit that they could be wrong on this stuff because it's a very, very uncertain time and global markets are anything but certain. And their opinion being hyperinflation in the US dollar or what exactly position are you referring to there? Well, there's a bunch of them that are somewhat related. They're different, but a lot of them kind of go hand in hand with the decline of the American empire, for lack of a better theme. I think there's almost this, the only word I can figure out is romantic, romantic notion that the U.S. is going to get what's coming to it. You know, it's been these profligate spenders for decades and the global bully who's gone around and pushed and shoved our opinion on the rest of the world and the rest of the world's tired of it. And they're going to rise up and throw off the yoke of the dollar. And, you know, the U.S. is going to end up this, in this pile of ashes and the rest of the world's going to be sunshine and roses. And I just think that that's completely, completely wrong. And so whenever I see kind of a narrative that kind of very easily describes that scenario, I feel like it's my job to push back on that. Because I don't feel like there's a lot of people that push back on that. I think it's almost like this given that America has met its zenith and it's now on the decline and it's only a matter of time. And the reality is that I'm somewhat sympathetic to that viewpoint, but I just think it happens much differently and over a much longer time period than some of these other narratives or themes would suggest. And so I feel like one of the errors 
that I have experienced individual investors making is they will invest in what they would like to see happen rather than what's actually going to happen. And they will take a low probability event and turn it into a high probability event and way overweight their portfolio to that event. So I feel like the way I can provide value is to kind of put the brakes on things a little bit and say, hold on a second. You know, let's let's take a real kind of hard, real world look at this. And I think some people appreciate that and some people don't, but that's what I do. Well, you've become pretty well known as the milkshake man because in 2018 or so, you put out this theory about the dollar milkshake. And we walked through this a little bit on episode 397 back in November, but it's predicated on this idea, maybe crazy idea, that someday debt will matter again. And I'm curious to know, in your opinion, what will make debt matter again? And is that what's happening now? Well, I think ultimately everything in economics comes down to two things, supply and demand, and kind of a subset of supply and demand is a cash flow. A business needs to receive cash flows in one form or another. It either needs to receive cash flow from current customers who are sending cash into it in exchange for a product, or they need to be out there raising money and getting cash flow from new investors. But if you're not attracting cash flow and you're not getting any incoming revenue stream, then that company is going to fail eventually. And the same things for an individual or for a country or kind of any organization. And one of the things that governments have been absolutely, and governments and monetary authorities have been absolutely great at, you know, and I tip my cap to them, is kicking the can down the road and extending the game. And typically the way that they've done that is when cash flows from customers stop flowing in, they've provided cash flow from government stimulus or bailouts or whatever you want to call it, right? And for that reason... Debt hasn't mattered. We've just kicked the can down the road in a weird way. So let me take a step back. As you said, I kind of started talking about this in 2018. And I am the first one to say that I was early. You know, on Wall Street, you're typically, if you're early, you're wrong. And so from that perspective, I was wrong. Now, I don't think I'm going to continue being wrong, but there's no question I was early. I kind of saw this playing out 2019, 2020 timeframe. And when COVID hit, I thought that was the trigger. In hindsight, it was not the trigger. And again, I'm not blaming being wrong on COVID. It kind of drives me crazy when people blame all their problems on COVID. But what I think happened was COVID was such a, for lack of a better word, globally systemic event. It sort of forced the whole world to work together to combat it. And so we kind of saw the whole world you know, do the same thing from a monetary policy perspective, from a government spending perspective, from a trade perspective, you know, perhaps Trump and China kind of took it a little bit easier on each other than they otherwise would have if they didn't have to deal with that. But, you know, now we fast forward and now we're in 2022. Maybe COVID isn't totally behind us, but it isn't kind of the front and center that it was two years ago or even a year ago. But now what we have is rather than the world working together, we have the bifurcation of the world. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say we've kind of gone back to this Cold War mentality where we've got Russia and China on one side and the U.S. and the West on the other. And, you know, sides are being drawn and partners are being picked and red lines are being put down. And I think it's the opposite of coordination. Then not only that, but within those two sides, there's fractions. And now we have not only monetary policy divergence between the two sides, East versus West, but we've got monetary policy divergence within the West and within the East. Some countries are tightening monetary policy and some countries are loosening monetary policy. That is the environment, especially when the U.S. is tightening monetary policy, where really volatile things happen. And it's primarily a reason because the whole world trades in dollars, because it's a global reserve currency, and because there's so much dollar debt out there. And it's the primary funding currency of most countries. When the U.S. raises rates or tightens monetary policy, they're not just tightening it on the United States. They're tightening it on the whole world. You know, when Japan does monetary policy or Europe does monetary policy or Brazil or Australia, when they do monetary policy, it's typically for their own region. It's typically not a global event. But when the U.S. does it, it's a global event. And so I think because of that happening, going back to what will cause debt to matter is I think flow of cash is going to start leaving certain places. And I think it's going to come mostly to the United States. 
if it moves at all, I think it's going to come to the United States. And if, if, again, if it doesn't move, capital's not moving. You're not going to get that cash flow. You're going to have a problem. And I think if it does move, I think it's mostly going to come to the West and to the United States in particular. And I think that's going to deprive the rest of the world of capital. And so I think that is what's going to cause debt to matter. The lack of coordination and the lack of uh, liquidity. Um, now we'll see. If that doesn't happen, I'll be wrong again. But that's kind of how I see it playing out. Or that's what I think causing debt to matter. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Let's walk the dog on that a little bit more. So you're saying essentially, you know, now that we're raising rates, we're tightening, it's tightening the entire world. And I've heard you talk about how in the dollar milkshake theory, U.S. assets would benefit. So is that what you're talking about when dollars are coming back to the U.S.? They're chasing yield. They're chasing U.S. denominated assets. And how exactly does that affect the level of debt? I always point out the very first time that I ever mentioned the milkshake theory by name, I was very clear that this is a story that ends badly for everybody, even for the United States, but that I thought on a relative basis to the rest of the world, the U.S. would outperform. And I actually think at some point we will get into a a point where the U.S. equity market is actually rising, not just versus the like. For the last couple of years, it's dramatically risen versus the rest of the world. Now, over the last month or so, you've seen it coming down. I don't think that that's over. I think it's going to continue to come down. But in the years ahead, I actually think we will see U.S. equity prices rise, not just versus the rest of the world, but on an absolute basis. And I think that will be because of this sovereign debt and this just general debt crisis that we have. I think money will leave bonds. We're already seeing that. We're already seeing money. A lot of money has left bonds. And uh, I think to a certain extent, U.S. large cap equities will replace global sovereign debt as a place to safely, quote unquote, on a relative basis, park capital. So the way it affects the debt is that 
It affects the debt in two different ways, and it depends on where the debt is located. If it affects U.S. dollar debt outside the United States, it deprives those markets who owe dollars of liquidity and it deprives them of capital. So, you know, the milkshake theory is the U.S. is sucking up that capital. When it sucks that capital into the United States, it's sucking that capital away from the rest of the world. And if the rest of the world either cannot get dollars to finance their trade or cannot get dollars to service their debt or cannot get dollars to do whatever that U.S. dollar funding for, that's a problem. And that's when defaults start to occur. And again, this is very complicated. I try to make it simple, but it's actually very complicated because in a debt-based monetary system where money is loaned into existence, the system has to grow. The debt has to get rolled. It's not designed to have a reverse gear. It can go backwards for a couple months, maybe a year or two with government support, but it can't just be allowed to go in reverse on its own because if that happens, the entire system crashes. And so that's what I think in many ways the rest of the world is going to be faced with is, you know, once you start to get a default, it leads to another default. And then when another default happens, then it leads to somebody getting laid off. And then when they get laid off, then they can't pay their bills. And then the people that they owed money to, then they can't pay their bills. And it kind of becomes this vicious cycle where the lack of liquidity begets more lack of liquidity. And once that starts, it's really hard to turn around. It's not impossible. You know, we've seen this several times. We saw it in 2001 dot-com crisis. We saw it in 2008 financial crisis. We saw it in 2020. But a lot, a lot of pain happens before they can turn it around. And it takes typically a Herculean effort to turn it around. And each time, it typically takes a bigger effort than it did previously. You know, and we all know how crazy it got in 2020 and the measures they had to take to kind of turn it around. And, you know, maybe they can turn it around again or maybe they can't. But I guess my point is, is that every time they've kicked the can down the road, they've made the problem bigger. When kicking the can down the road does not decrease the problem, it makes it bigger. It makes it come along later, but it makes the problem bigger. So I think it will eventually get away from them and, you know, we will have kind of a global contagion. So on that last point about kicking the can, rolling things over, the U.S. has $6.5 trillion coming due in the next 12 months, and they've got to roll that over. And now they're rolling it over at a higher interest rate, it would seem. So what kind of effect? I mean, how can we interpolate that? I mean, what is going to be the effect of moving all that to a higher interest rate? Yeah. Well, so the first thing is it's a problem. I'm the first one to hold up my hand and say, listen, the U.S. is not in good shape here. This is not a good situation to be in. But the second thing I'll say is that rates are not just rising in the United States. They're rising all over the world. And not only are they rising in U.S. dollar terms, but they're rising in other currency terms because the U.S. dollar is rising versus almost every other currency. So if the U.S. dollar is is rising versus every other currency and rates are going up in U.S. dollars, then that means it's going up even more for all these other countries uh, that have U.S. dollar funding or you need U.S. dollars to trade. And we get back to this relative argument. One distinction I should probably make is, you know, again, when individuals listen to this, they may make the comment, well, just sell everything and go sit in cash, you know, button down the hatches. That is possible for you as an individual. That is not possible for a large pension fund. That is not possible for a large endowment. That's not possible for hedge funds and central banks. And, you know, they have to place capital. Their investment policy statements probably says something that they can have a maximum size of cash position of like 3% or 5%. A 5% cash position in a pension fund would probably be fairly large. So, That means 95% of their capital, it has to go somewhere. And by the same thing, they might have an allocation that allows them to go 5% to gold. I think that would actually be even a high percentage that would allow them to go to gold. And most of them don't believe in gold. You as an individual might believe in gold, but most of these big pension funds and asset gatherers and asset allocators are not huge allocators to gold. Now, maybe they will be someday, but that's a process. So, you know, 90 to 95% of this money has to go somewhere. And so, you know, it's not a matter of going and saying, gosh, even if you hate everything, you have to pick one of them and to place your capital there. And I think when that happens, that capital will choose a U.S. treasury that now yields dramatically more than just about any other treasury. You can actually get some yield in bonds now. You know, for years, we've said bonds are a return-free risk because you buy this thing, you know, interest rates are eventually going to go up. You're taking all the risk, but you're not getting any interest in return. Well, again, it's not bad. It certainly hasn't normalized, but it's much closer to normal today than it was even just a year ago. So the fact that you can get, I think the 10-year hit 3% earlier today. So you can get 3% 
percent by buying a ten-year Treasury. But if you buy a ten-year Japanese bond, you get 0.25 percent. Now, if you have to put your money somewhere, and you know you have liabilities in dollars. And you know you have to trade in dollars, and you have to choose between buying a Japanese Treasury that yields you 0.25 percent and a 10-year Treasury that yields you three. You buy the 10-year Treasury, you offset your liabilities perfectly. You don't have to do any currency hedging, and you know you get a yield that's almost 10 times as much as the other one. It's not that hard of a decision to make, and so. From that perspective, even though it will be harder for the U.S. to fund itself now that interest rates are much higher than they were a year ago, I think that we will be a more attractive option for global capital than the rest of the world. And so, while it is a problem and it will eventually cause us to probably maybe default in some form or another, I think it will happen to the rest of the world first. And when it starts happening to the rest of the world first, I think that makes the dollar even more attractive. So again. It's not that I'm ignoring the problems in the U.S. It's just I think there's a sequence of events, and I think that sequence of events comes home to roost last in the U.S. And so you kind of have to look at things on an absolute basis just to understand the absolute game. But you cannot ignore the flow of funds that will exist based on the relative game, if that makes sense. Again, everything comes down to flow, right? And if the U.S. is getting the flows. Even if the flows are smaller than they are today, but they're bigger going into the U.S. than they are everywhere else, on a relative basis, the U.S. is still better off than the rest of the world. That's so interesting. And when I asked earlier about when debt is going to matter again, I almost expected you to say, you know, when inflation matters again. Now we have to increase interest rates to quell inflation and. You have everyone in the U.S. at least scratching their heads like, why on earth are we raising into weakness, into a lot of things that are happening in the market right now? And to your point, what I'm hearing from you just now is that the Fed is thinking more globally, right? And they're saying, well, we got to raise rates because we're going to have to print more money. We're going to have to create more bonds to fund that money printing. And who's going to buy it? Ideally, not the Fed. You know, Ideally, it'd be the rest of the world. And maybe they will if we are able to provide some real yield. Is that correct? I mean, that's part of it. I think them raising rates is kind of threefold. One, you make it more attractive and then you get more capital. Number two, if you raise, then you have more room to cut later if you want to. Number three is the inflation point that you just brought up. And I'm going to go off on a tangent here, but I promise I'm going to come back to this point. You know, if you think back a year ago, it was an absolute given that interest rates were never going to be raised and the government was never going to stop sending checks. The playbook was financial repression. We're going to hold real rates negative. We're going to keep rates low. We're going to keep spending fiscal stimulus, and we are going to inflate our way out of this problem. If we can get 5% inflation for the next 10 years, that decreases the the debt burden by 50%. And the point is, is that works really, really well on a spreadsheet. It doesn't work that well in real life because there's political ramifications of having 5% inflation. The other thing is it's very hard to get 5% inflation without it splurging out of the toothpaste tube and becoming 10% inflation or 15% inflation. And once that happens, starts to happen, politicians start to feel it. And politicians are nothing but short-term thinkers. I mean, that's how they get reelected is taking care of short-term problems. They don't get reelected by taking care of long-term problems. So, and we've already seen, and so my point is, is the certainty with which financial repression was going to take hold a year ago has just a year later, we're having rate hikes and they're going to raise rates again tomorrow or Wednesday. They may raise rates again in June. They're going to start doing QT. And if you don't believe that they're going to do this, then I think you're not paying attention. Now, at some point they're going to have to reverse But I think they're going to keep tightening until something breaks. And I think that they know that if something breaks, it's going to break overseas before it breaks here. And if it breaks overseas before it breaks here, that gives the U.S. political leverage, which is, you know, again, that's what they want. As the global hegemon, that's what the U.S. wants leverage on the rest of the world. So that's why this inflation, your point about inflation, it's an important one. And to your point, inflation is causing the rate rises. The rate rises is pulling the dollar higher because you get more bang for your buck if you put it into dollars and put it into treasuries. And then putting the dollar going higher squeezes the rest of the world. So now the rest of the world, we're in a global slowdown from a growth perspective. So the rest of the world, their top line is slowing down. But because the dollar is going higher and rates are going higher, their bottom line financing costs costs are going up. So they're getting squeezed and their currencies are starting to fall because many countries are trying to combat this squeeze with more fiscal stimulus and spending more money and doing more QE in easy money policy. And again, so it becomes this vicious circle, which actually perpetuates the problem rather than solving the problem. So to your point, what causes the debt to matter is inflation is a very good, is one of the answers and maybe the best answer. 
Well, you talked about something breaking, especially globally. Aren't we seeing that? I mean, the yen has now broken yes. through a 40-year trend line and it is like falling off of a cliff. The yuan is following closely behind it. What are we going to have to see breaking for the Fed to uh, reverse course here? Well, so again, there's a couple things here. First of all, they're not going to reverse course without pain. They are a reactionary agency. They're not a proactive agency. They're going to stay on their path until something forces them to change their path. And right now, it's not bad enough that it's changing. Right now, the pain, the pain that the average person in the United States is feeling right now is inflation. And so that and politically, what the biggest knock against the Biden administration right now is inflation. And if the Democrats want to get reelected the majority in the House or whatever, they need inflation to come down between now and November because the Republicans will blame it all on them. Now, whether that's accurate or not, I mean, we could probably debate that for a century. I'm just saying the, the perception is, is that this is Biden's problem and Biden is a Democrat and the Democrats are in control of the House. So why can't they do something to fix it? And so this is a real problem. It, it, this is this is the real politic of inflation. Again, they've wanted inflation for years. Now they've got it. But unfortunately, instead of getting three to five percent inflation, they've got eight percent inflation or 10 percent or 20, whatever number you know you want to subscribe to. Inflation is much higher than was expected. And so that is the problem that they're currently dealing with. So going back to your point, what is going to make the Fed change their mind? It's going to take more pain than we currently have, because if they were to go back to QE, as an example, that's going to likely increase the inflationary effects, at least in the short term. You know, I don't really have time to get into the whole, you know, monetary reserves and what's a reserve and what it isn't and is, is QE inflationary or deflationary. But I would argue that it pushes prices higher in the short term, but maybe for not for the reasons that many people think it does. But again, without going too much into that debate right now, that would exacerbate the inflation problem, at least in the short term. And so they're not going to do that, I don't think, before the election, unless something forces them to. And what could force them to is kind of a global EM meltdown. If the rest of the world starts to melt down and then that comes back and starts to melt down in the U.S., then they will react. But again, if that happens, the U.S. on a relative basis is still going to be better off. Again, we are not going to have a situation where the U.S. markets are down 30 or 40 percent and EM is up 5 percent or 20 percent. It just doesn't work that way. I'm sorry for anybody who thinks that that's going to happen, but it's just not going to happen. You know, so it's possible that the whole world kind of goes down together, in which case the U.S. has to bail out the rest of the world and the U.S., but if the U.S. is bailing out the rest of the world, the U.S. is in the driver's seat. The person doing the bailing out has more leverage than the other guy. Now, I know some people will say, well, if you owe the bank $100 million, then you have the leverage. Well, when you also have aircraft carriers and hypersonic missiles, you know that changes a little bit. And that's another part of my argument is that the U.S. is the global hegemon. There is you know, not too many countries that can even consider taking on the United States. And I would argue that there's nobody that can beat the United States in a global military conflict right now. Now, that doesn't mean that the U.S. would not get hurt in a war. It doesn't mean that I think that we could easily roll over just anybody in the world. I just mean that, you know, when if you really go to the mattresses, so to speak, I think the U.S. comes out ahead. And that's how a global hegemon works. You know, I, I think part of raising rates and making the dollar stronger is part of the U.S. kind of getting the rest of the world back in line. To me, it's a geo political tool as much as it is a domestic monetary tool. And I think that's kind of what you're seeing right now. Let's keep talking about what will drive something to break. You know, we've described yeah. the U.S. dollar in previous conversations as a wrecking ball, especially when it gets to higher levels. And we are now seeing the U.S., well, the DXY at least, at 103 and change as of today. Last time we spoke, I asked you, what would be a number that would get you, you know, be a red flag yeah. or an alarm going off for you? And you said around 97. So we're, we're well past that. I and mean, yeah, we've definitely yeah. gone above and beyond. But you've also said that what's more important than the nominal number is the rate in which it is change yeah. and has been climbing Absolutely. fairly slowly over the last six months or so. Why do you think that is? And are you less concerned that it's at 103 because the rate of change has been lower? Well, I'm not less concerned. I'm very concerned. I think your point is perfect in that the reason that we haven't seen chaos, for lack of a better word, is because it's taken six months to go from 94 to 102 or 103. Whereas in 2012, we went from 94 to 102 in 10 days. So that's when the wrecking ball just comes out of nowhere. Nobody's ready for it and just kind of knocks you over. You know, the most recent one has been kind of 
for lack of a better word, kind of the slow boiling of the frog, so to speak. You know, the ratchet's gotten slowly tighter and slowly. Now it's still tight. Don't get me wrong. That ratchet is still tight, but it hasn't been the knee jerk tightening. It's just been the slow tightening. And so I think that's why the world, for the most part, has weathered it a little better than it did in 2020. But at this level, it's starting to cause real problems. And you mentioned a little bit ago the yen. And I said, I'd come back to it. To me, the yen, and I said this at a conference a couple of weeks ago, and I've actually seen it being talked about much more over the last two or three weeks, but a month ago, nobody was talking about the yen. But to me, the yen is the most important thing that nobody was talking about. And it's the most important thing that people are starting to talk about now, because the yen is now at 130 versus the dollar. Now, a year or so ago, it was at 105. At the beginning of the year, it was like at 115, 110, 115. And so for a major currency, that's a big move for an emerging market currency. But for a major currency, probably the third biggest or most used currency in the world to move that much over a two-month period. That's a huge move. And what, what's happening is exactly, I hate being the I told you so guy, but this is the milkshake. To hopefully this will help explain it. Like, And this is why I said this will happen to the US last is that Japan, despite all the problems the US has, Japan has the same problems. They have a huge amount of debt. They have very low interest rates. The Bank of Japan has had to buy so many of the JGBs to keep interest rates low. People say the Fed buys all the bonds here. Well, the Bank of Japan's balance sheet and the percent of bonds that they buy makes us look like very conservative investors. And so what's happened is all of their banks, all of their insurance companies, all their pension funds own these huge amounts of Japanese bonds on their balance sheets. But they bought them with either zero or negative even yields or extremely low yields. So if, if yields, if interest rates even go up a half a percent or one percent in Japan, these pension funds and banks, they get wiped out. They have a banking crisis. And so what's happening this year is, again, the, the interest rates going up in the U.S., it's not just a U.S. problem. It's a global problem. They're going up all over the world. And so they're actually starting to go up in Japan. And the Japanese tenure has gone up 25 basis points. And just that small move has caused so much problem for the, the Japanese banking system is that the Bank of Japan has had to come out on several occasions now and institute yield curve control, which is basically saying we will buy as many bonds as we have to in order to keep rates down. And if you think about that, every time they buy bonds, they're making yen available, right? They're exchanging yen for bonds. And so then those banks can take those yen and, and loan them out to, or, or use them as reserves to make loans and extend the game. And you know that basically makes the increases the yen available. And so the yen is starting to fall in value. And they've basically said, well, this is the point with yield curve control. A lot of people will make this point with the dollar. The U.S. was going to have to choose. Do they save the bond market or do they save the dollar? And I agree. The U.S. is going to have to make this choice someday. Unfortunately for Japan, that someday is already today. They have to choose between saving their bond market and saving the yen. And because they can't afford a banking crisis, they've decided to sacrifice the yen. They're going to save their banks and sacrifice their citizens' purchasing power. That's what they're doing. And so you see the yen just continuing to fall. And I think that's going to continue to happen. I think the yen is going to go to 140 before it turns around. And then maybe it'll have a little bit of a rally. And then it's going to go to 150, 175. And I think it's going to go to two, 200, because I don't think there's anything that the Bank of Japan can do to stop. And so, you know, if that happens, then that's going to contribute greatly to the DXY going higher. And again, as the dollar starts to go higher, then it starts to cause other people problems. What's interesting about the yen is that we've talked about the problems that it will cause for Japan, but it's already starting to cause problems for China because China is a regional competitor to Japan. And as the yen continues to lose value, Japanese goods become more competitive with Chinese goods. So China is already dealing with stagflation because they have deflation in their real estate market and their economy. They've got rising inflationary problems because they have to import a lot of their food and energy. And so they're getting squeezed in the middle. But the yuan is pegged to a band. Now, it floats a little bit, but it's pegged to a band. And because the yield on the yuan was higher than the dollar for the last couple of years, they got a lot of inflows. And it's those inflows of capital that allows them to peg their currency. But now, because U.S. interest rates have risen so much, they're no longer getting those inflows. And because of the fear of sanctions on China, money's coming out of China. So we've seen the biggest outflows out of China since uh, 2020, and they're picking up speed. So that may, it's making it harder for China 
to compete with Japan because Japan's currency is lower and they're not getting the dollar flows that they used to get. So it's very possible that the weakening yen will put pressure on the China to depreciate the yuan. And if you look back in history, 2013, when the yen lost value, it eventually led to the yuan losing value. And in 2015, a weak yen is what ultimately led to the yuan doing their mini devalue. And so, you know, if the yuan has another mini devalue, that's going to send a deflationary wave to the rest of the world. Now, whether that wave lasts for a couple of days or a couple of months, I don't know, but I know that it's not a pleasant economic event should that happen. So to your point, you know, this, even though the, we've had this slowly boiling frog of the, you know, the DXY going from 94 to 103 over six, eight, nine months, it is a problem at these levels. And if something breaks, when something unexpectedly breaks, that's when the DXY gaps higher. That's when you get the real move. And then that causes other things to break. So it's kind of like the perfect storm right now, to be honest. Stagflation is kind of the worst of all worlds because you're getting squeezed from both sides and you try to solve one problem and you exacerbate the other. And, and I just don't think that the monetary authorities are going to be able to manage their way out of this one without significant volatility. Now, it doesn't mean the world's going to end and we're all going to you know be in a pile of ashes, but I think it's I think it's going to be very painful. Where you're seeing a lot of volatility right now is in oil and and energy. That's been climbing higher. And to your point with the yen, I mean, collapsing for lack of a better word, you know, that just makes energy more expensive, right? And they used to be able to to export their inflation by when they were printing money, doing yield control activities. But if we move into this deglobalization where we're all kind of going back to our own, you know, native mindset and nationalist mindset, how does that affect energy prices in your mind? I mean, the the price of oil, you see that going higher and higher from here? Yeah, I mean, I think in the very short term, I think it's possible we could have a demand shock to a certain extent. Maybe oil comes back down into the 80s. That, that would not surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me at all to see oil in the 80s. But I do think over the next year or two, we're going to go much higher in oil. Like I would be a buyer of oil, you know, if, if we get a pullback. I mean, we already own, you know, some energy names and stuff. But in general, I think energy prices are going higher. Again, geopolitical conflict is typically inflationary because it causes less cooperation. It causes more supply chain disruptions. Again, one of the big debates over the last couple of years was, are the inflationary effects the result of all the bailouts and the helicopter money? Or is it the result of uh, COVID shutdowns and supply chain problems? And the answer is it's probably a little of both. But for everybody who is saying it's just a matter of what the central banks are doing, I hope that that has been put to rest. Because, you know, we now we've got some tightening going on and we've still got supply chain problems and we've still got prices rising. I mean, a lot of people didn't think it was possible to have inflationary pressures while the dollar's rising. And I kept saying you can absolutely have inflation with a rising DXY. And again, a lot of times this comes from individuals is I will get pushback and, and they'll say, Brent, it doesn't matter if the dollar rises, if it's only rising versus other fiat. It only matters if it's rising against real things. And, you know, that is the worst because the entire system runs on dollars. And if you get a deflationary wave in dollars and people have to get margin calls and they have to liquidate things in their accounts, everything will get sold just like it did in 2020. Now, it maybe it lasts for only a few days or a few weeks, but it will happen or it can happen. In a debt-based monetary system, you can never rule out deflationary shocks or deflationary waves. But the worst of all worlds is when the dollar is going up versus other currencies, but it's also going down versus things you need. That's stagflation. And that is what leads to hyperinflation in other currencies, not the US dollar, but in other currencies. And I hate that I even said that word because I think hyperinflation is the most overused word in FinTwit and global finance. And I think it gets bandied about way too often because it's it, to a certain extent, it's lost its effect. You know, what we're experiencing now, while painful from an inflation perspective, is nowhere near hyperinflation. Hyperinflation has about as much in common with regular inflation as a Ferrari has with a horse. I mean, they both move, but completely different. But this is the environment in which hyperinflation of peripheral and currencies would happen because there's no global demand for their peripheral currencies. So when they print, it has to stay in their own country. And so it loses all its purchasing power in its own country and it loses dramatically versus the dollar. But as the dollar continues to rise, their costs continue to go up. So if anybody thinks that the relative currencies don't matter, especially when the DXY is rising, I would just urge you to rethink that because it's actually even worse. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? 
Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one and actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. They say that the road to ruin is paved with good intentions. And then last time we spoke, we were talking about how these politicians and even you know people in the Fed, they're kind of like magicians because they can continue yeah. to kick this can down the road and come up with all these creative ways. And just lately, you're seeing, well, for one, we're talking about student debt forgiveness here in the US. Yeah. We're talking about 10 grand for about 13% of our population here, which equates to roughly you know half a trillion dollars of stimulus, really, which is what it is, right? Because that's debt they don't have to service. They can go spend it in other ways. And then in Australia, you're seeing them, their government come out saying they're going to buy yeah. or offer up 40% of home purchases just yeah, right. to keep that bolstered. And so where I'm kind of confused is, you know, quantitative easing didn't seem to create any inflation. And it seems like we're now in this place where we're really hesitant to go back to quantitative easing for right now. And we're more prone to go direct with direct stimulus, which in my mind just kind of creates more problems, right? With inflation and everything else. So why do you think we're seeing, is it just because they're trying to get reelected 
The thing you mentioned with Australia is a perfect example because this is the opposition party. There's an election coming up in Australia. This is the opposition party. They're already starting to see downward pressure on home prices in Australia, which is a huge problem for Australia. And they haven't even raised interest rates. They're probably going to raise interest rates tomorrow, but they haven't yet. And so this is a perfect example of the opposition party trying to get elected, making campaign promises. And again, they're not coming out making a promise to cure inflation or they're not coming out and making a promise you know, to take money away from somebody, they're coming out and making a promise to give more money to them or help them in some form. You know, they're not coming out and saying, we're going to help you with inflation, we're, we're going to come out and help you buy that home in order to keep home prices coming up. And they're using that as a, they're dangling that shiny object to get elected. And that's, again, whether you're a current politician, or you're somebody who's trying to get elected, that is how you get elected. And that's how these problems get kicked down the road. And that's why they just become bigger and bigger. Again, there, there's no easy solution now because whichever way they go, they cause one of the other problems. If they continue to raise rates, they're going to cause a credit contraction because you know people will start defaulting at some point with higher rates. But if they cut rates and go back to easy monetary policies, it's going to extenuate the, the inflationary pressures that are being felt. So again, it's kind of a damned if you're damned if you don't moment. And this is, like I said, this is why it's the worst of all worlds because there is no easy solution. There is no easy way to get out of this. And typically, typically, if you just stood back and let the free markets do its work, it would be really painful, but it'd probably be over in six to nine months, right? But governments don't stay in power by just standing back and let the free market work. And new people don't get elected to positions of power by saying, I'm not going to do anything. Please elect me. I'm not going to do anything to help you. Right. No, that's not a very good campaign platform. And so these problems just get bigger. Eventually, eventually debt will matter. Eventually, the markets will overpower the monetary mandarins, for lack of a better word, and the central bank, you know, omniscience. But again, central banks are very powerful. And that's why one of my other pet peeves is when people say, oh, the central bank, they're going to they're out of bullets. There's nothing they can do. Well, trust me, there's a lot more things they can do. Now, ultimately, I think they're going to lose control. And I'm not a fan of central bankers at all. But to say that they don't have any power, they, they're out of bullets and they can no longer do anything. I would be very careful if I was making that bet. Well, said another way, I think what people are referring to is, uh, to your point earlier, it's they could do quantitative easing and increase the asset prices, which you know basically decreases the public's purchasing power in a way, or right. they can create stimulus thus creating real inflation and, you know, everyday goods, which thus decreases purchasing power. So it just seems like no matter which way they go, our purchasing power is going to be collapsing more and more over time. And to your point, I think it's like, you know, we'll be the last ones in the race or the last to be affected, which is, a, I think, a really interesting nuance to the discussion that's not often, I think, appreciated. And I guess my question then would be, so if our purchasing power is going down, there's usually, you would think, to flock to a store of value, right? A store of wealth. Sure. And gold yeah. comes to mind, to your point, with endowments yeah. may or may not being going to gold. I mean, we did see gold shoot up recently, went over 2000 dollars it's come back down. I'm a little surprised gold hasn't done more given the environment yeah. we're in. I mean, obviously there's the other store of values out there as well we could talk about, but that one in particular with everything going on today, why is that yeah. not much higher than it is today in your opinion? It's a very good question. And you're not alone. A lot of people are trying to figure that out. I tend to think that it's a combination of a couple of things. One is that real rates have gotten high enough to now to where real rates are positive. When real rates were negative, because inflationary pressures are starting to come down a little bit. Again, they're hot. I'm not pretending that they're not high, but you know, the price of oil has stopped skyrocketing higher. You know, copper started to come down a little bit. Some of the other inflationary effects are either not rising as fast or they're expected to not rise as fast. And so forward-looking rates, uh, real rates are positive now. And when they were negative, gold was screaming. So I think that's part of it. The other thing is I think there's also this understanding that there is uncertainty out there. Again, you know, a year ago, everybody was absolutely certain the government was never going to stop sending checks and they were just going to do QE forever. But, but now they're not. And every time we've had a financial crisis, again, people always say buy gold for a financial crisis. And Listen, I agree with that. But you have to understand that in a financial crisis, the reason you have an insurance policy is so that you can use it in a financial crisis, right? And the thing is, gold is always liquid. No matter what the environment is, you'll always be able to sell gold. So when a financial crisis starts to hit, people start to cash in their insurance policy. So you know, if we have another financial crisis and everything gets liquidated, I think gold gets liquidated with it. Now, I think it will come back faster than just about anything else, just like it did in 2020. But in 2020, the market for gold, I think went from, was it 1600 to 1400? It went down like $200. The miners went down 40 or 50%, you know, and so it wasn't immune from this market sell-off. Now, 
I think that you can buy gold. And as long as you understand why you own it in a portfolio, I don't really think it matters whether it goes higher or lower. You own it as insurance. But if you're buying gold as a speculative way to get rich, then I think there's a lot of risk in that. You know, like If you have a long time horizon, maybe you don't. But if you need to use that part of your portfolio to live or to pay bills or, or to fund some other project, there's nothing to say that we couldn't have a pullback in gold, in which case you become a distressed seller rather than a distressed buyer. But I think it's really, really hard to find stores of value right now. I mean, gold is about as good a store of value as there is, but even that's not a guarantee. There is unfortunately no guarantees, right? This is a really, really hard time you know, for people who are trying to protect their portfolios. Now you tweeted today, has there ever been an asset that's broken more hearts than silver? And I got to say, I'm one of those broken hearted people because I've been hanging on to silver admittedly for years now. And I saw it as a very asymmetric bet. The thesis wasn't terribly strong. I just saw it as incredibly cheap and it has just done really nothing for years. So I'm right in that camp and I'm just kind of curious, why do you think that is? Is it similar to the gold argument and, and what's your prospect I, I think for silver? I think it's similar to a gold argument. I think it's also that silver is more of an industrial metal than gold, right? And so, you know, with some questions of what's going on in the economy now, we see other risk assets selling off. It's, to me, it's not shocking to see silver selling off with it. I think part of it is it's just, it's a smaller market and it can be pushed around a lot easier. So when people do sell, you know, in size, it affects it more. But, you know, I listen, I think that gold and silver are both going to do phenomenally well, let's say over the next five years, but it doesn't mean it's going to happen over the next five months. And I'm not one of these people who thinks every day that I come in and gold is down, that it's because of manipulation. I think people who rely on that rely on that too much. And the second thing I'd say is if you think it's that easy to manipulate the market, then you really want a market that can be manipulated that easy as your the bedrock of your portfolio. Again, I think any of these speculative assets, which I consider silver a speculative asset. Now, that doesn't mean that the speculative asset won't go up 10 times in the next five years, but it's much more of a speculative asset. And I think as uncertainty creeps back into the market and inflationary pressures start to wane a little bit and real interest rates rise, silver starts to become a little less desirable. And again, I think one thing that would help people, especially people who are investors in silver or even gold, is when you think about stuff like this, you know, don't think about how you think about it. Put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Think about the person who you spoke to last week who had no idea what the price of silver even was. What would they do? And if the answer, if they don't even know what the price of silver is, they're probably not going to go buy silver. So if they're not going to go buy silver, then who is? So you can't think of what you or what, you know, people who are like-minded like you are going to do. You kind of have to think about what's the rest of the market going to do. And if the rest of the, if you think the rest of the market's going to go to silver, then then go buy it. And if it doesn't go up, then it just means you were wrong. But just under, I think the, the idea that, you know, you can just put your money in gold and silver and there's no risk involved. I think that's wrong. Well, speaking of what the rest of the world is going to do, there's been a lot of speculation around Russia. You know, now that they're cut off from the SWIFT system, they have been stockpiling gold for quite a while. And there was a lot of speculation as to whether they would back the ruble by gold or maybe even oil or some kind of you know energy asset, given that that's their leverage at the moment. What is your perspective future for something like the ruble? And how does it tie in with China? Because China is saying that this could be a quote unquote new model, you know, but the Russia China relationship could be a new model for the rest of the world. What do you think they mean by that? So I think what's going on is it's extremely interesting. And it's kind of funny because because of my dollar views, a lot of people will say to me, Brent, how can you not see these things that are happening? And the red is I do see them. I see what's that are happening. I admit that these are kind of historical events in the historical times and that the world is changing. But I don't necessarily see it the same way that some of the others who think that these are like genius moves by, you know, the East that the U.S. never thought could happen. There's been books been written about exactly these events happen. So it's not like these were unknown possibilities. But I think what I would say with regard to Russia and China, if you had to choose between the two places, I would choose... If I was an alien coming down to Earth and I was observing all that was going on and I could choose between being the United States and Europe or maybe just the United States, leave Europe out of it, and Russia and China, I'm going to take the United States. Not because I grew up here and not because I think it's the greatest place in the world, but despite all the problems, if you look at all the problems and all the advantages for both North America and then Russia, China, I think that the U.S. 
has more advantages and less disadvantages than the ones over there. Now, that doesn't mean that Russia and China are not formidable adversaries. They are. They're very smart and they have resources. The fact that Russia is one of the biggest uh, natural resource producing countries in the world gives them tremendous leverage. Now, I don't think it gives them enough leverage to go rule the world. And I don't think that the ruble is going to overtake the dollars, the global reserve currency. But I do think the fact that they have these assets that the rest of the world needs does give them leverage. I think to a large extent, they have played their hand pretty well because they had these sanctions put on them. I'm talking about Russia now. They had the sanctions put on them and they used their resources and their central bank in order to prop up the value of the ruble because the ruble fell dramatically. And I think some of the capital controls, the raising of interest rates, and I think the job owning that they've done with the gold has helped the ruble obviously come back. Now, I don't think you have to understand this is an extremely manipulated currency at this point. This is not the free market bringing the ruble back to where it was prior to the war. But that said, you know, Russia did it. They played their card and, they, and it's helped them, you know, increase the value of the ruble so that at least they're not going through like super, super high levels of currency debasement right now. I still think that's very possible that happens, but as of right now, they're not. And, you know, their biggest customer is China and China said, we're going to buy a lot of your energy. So I do see, you know, this kind of goes back to the point we were making earlier on where we've got these two blocks, right? We've got the Eastern block and the Western block, and there's a lot of partnership going on in, inside those blocks, but there's not a cooperation outside of them. And so I think that you're going to see more of this. I think the world is going to continue to try to de-dollarize. I think the world is going to continue to try to use the assets they have to their advantage to try to get out from underneath the oppression of the dollar or the U.S. global reserve currency or the hegemon, however you want to describe that. I think that those efforts are going to be much less successful than they are written on paper. I would almost equate it to, you know, we were talking about the financial repression earlier about how, you know, all you got to do is keep rates low and then print money and you inflate away the debt over 10 years and and it works beautiful. And it's one of those things that it works beautiful on a spreadsheet, but it doesn't work so well in the real world. And I I would kind of point that out here with the uh, kind of the the trading and the the currency manipulations that are being done between China and the United or China and Russia. I'm not saying they're not trying. I'm not saying they will have zero success, but I think it's going to be much harder to pull all this off in the real world than it is on a spreadsheet. Is it also that this time is just different. For example, when we did that financial repression, we were basically coming out of World War II. So you're talking about like the 1950s timeframe, we basically inflated that debt away. That wasn't the nearly the global economy we have today, right? Is the fact that we have this global economy part of the reason why we can't just inflate away the debt? Yeah, it's a big part of it. Number one, debts are much bigger and the growth potential is much smaller. Now, I never say never. Crazy things happen. Perhaps there will be some new technology that is discovered or invented and will allow us to wean ourselves off $100 oil or $200 oil or whatever it is. And we can maybe something will be discovered that we can increase crop yields by 500% by sprinkling some fairy dust on the fields. And it will solve these inflationary problems uh, and these uh, supply chain problems. And it will lead to global growth and we'll grow out of this. I think it's highly unlikely. Again, very small probability event. I, I wouldn't put it at zero, but I wouldn't put it much higher than one or two percent either. So to your point, it's just it's going to be very, very hard to get out of what we're seeing right now. And the other thing I would say is that for the Russia and China and some of the other countries who are trying to break away from the U.S. dominance you know, in the global reserve currency, however you want to define that whole movement, that is unfortunately not going to happen without a military conflict. It's just not. They can try and maybe they will have some successes and maybe something that will happen to the U.S. and, you know, we will stumble. But global reserve currencies do not transfer from one place to another without significant amount of pain and typically without military conflict. Again, it's not impossible. It's just really, really, really low probability. So I hate saying that and I hope to God that it doesn't come to that. You know, I have a son who's 13 and, you know, in the next few years, he'll be at the age where he would, God forbid, have to participate in something like that. And I just, I hate even thinking about that. And I don't want anybody else's sons or daughters to be involved in that either. But I, when I look at history, that's what it tells me. So you mentioned things might get worse before they get better. So just as a mile marker here, as of Friday, at least, you know, about half of the NASDAQ was down 50% 
22% of the Nasdaq was down 75%, and about one in 20 of them are down 90%. So, you know, I would speculate that of all the things, of all the assets in the world, high flying tech companies are probably the, the thing the Fed cares about the least. But if that starts to spill over into other, like even value based companies, and we start yeah. to see a bigger decline happening, where do you think we're going from here before, you know, things maybe turn around? Well, I think we're going lower in equities. Again, I don't know, maybe we get another, you know, we had a we had a sell-off in March. We had a really strong bounce the last two weeks of March, and then it just rolled over hard in April. I don't think the Fed wants chaos. I don't think the Fed minds lower asset prices because I think they want to get inflation down. And I think bringing asset prices down is part of getting inflation under control. But they don't want to collapse. I don't think they want to collapse. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if uh, after the Fed meeting, they jawbone in some way that, that gives equities a little bit of a lift. Now, again, I, I'm totally speculating here. I'll have to wait and see what they actually say. And this, this doesn't mean that I'm positioned one way or another, but it wouldn't surprise me if we get a you know a little bounce uh, somewhere over the next couple of weeks. But I think between now and the end of June, we're going lower. I think it's most likely that, you know, probably below, I don't like making predictions like that, but, you know, I think uh, it wouldn't be at all surprise me to see, you know, equity prices five or 10% lower from here. Well, one prediction you have made is that the dollar is going to strengthen over time. And yeah. so far, you've yeah. been right. I mean, since 2018, maybe there's been some meandering along the way. But what we're seeing right now sure sounds like the dollar milkshake theory in play. So I have to give you credit for that. And it's always a pleasure speaking with you, Brent. Thank you for coming back on the show and updating us. I hope we can continue to do this because this is a, a movie that's unfolding and it's not going to be boring <laughs> no, ever, no matter which that's way, a good it way to say it. It's funny. I would say that too. I, listen, I don't know how the next couple of years are going to play out. I obviously have opinions and I'm happy to share them, but I, I don't know for sure. But the one thing I am kind of certain about is it's not going to be boring. So I think the way you just said it, it's perfect. Well, before I let you go, Brent, I want to make sure I give you the handoff for uh, where people can find you and follow along with uh, your updates. Sure. So I've got a website that basically just has my uh, very basic contact information on it. So if you go to SantiagoCapital.com, um, it has contact information there. You can send me a message. And if you want more information, I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter. You can you know search it under either Santiago Capital. My handle is Santiago AU Fund. You can also go to either Google or YouTube and type in, you know, Santiago Capital or Milkshake Theory or Brent Johnson. And, you know, hard to believe that there's many links at this point. And I'm always happy to, if I have time, I'm always happy to answer emails. It's, it gets kind of hard to do it sometimes, but feel free to try. Well, Brent, again, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody. That's all we had for you this week. If you're loving the show, don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast app. And if you'd be so kind to leave us a review, we really appreciate it. You can also reach me on Twitter at Trey Lockerbie. And next time you're at your computer, go ahead and Google TIP Finance and check out all the resources we have for you there. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.